As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Are you looking to grow your business and stay resilient? Look no further than FM Global. With over 180 years of scientific research and engineering expertise, we bring innovative solutions to ensure your commercial property today so you can prosper tomorrow. People made split-second decisions without knowing or understanding the, um, the architecture of the hotel. So when the, when the heavy firing began, some people ran up, up, up back staircase and some people ran down. And the difference between up and down can be life and death. This is the Vice podcast. I'm Ben Anderson. I'm interviewing Adrian Levy and Cathy Scott-Clark, whose fifth book is called The Siege, about the siege of the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel, which happened almost five years ago to this day. So most people probably remember roughly, very roughly, what happened. Take us through what actually happened now, having done your research. Well, five years ago, pretty much to the day, a group of 10 Pakistani gunmen came over by rubber dinghy from Karachi to Mumbai with the view to setting the fourth largest city in the world alight and they managed to cause total chaos, kill 166 people and hold um, several target locations, including the Taj Hotel, under siege for three days. And ten guys in a rubber dinghy doesn't sound like much, yet it lasted for, what, three days? They, they had many um, simple and uh, high-tech, low-cost ideas to make the plot really take hold. Um, they had a control room back in Karachi with a bank of TV screens, um, they were tuned into all of the world's cable channels, well, CNN, uh, BBC, local um, channels, AgeTalk, um, Times Now. And they had um, broadband connection and Google Earth. And they had set up an internet telephony service like Skype. So the guys who were on the ground, um, the gunmen, were being directed using Skype, free phone calls, using Google Earth. They'd never been in Mumbai before. Um, and they could actually pick up the, re the reactions to every action that they committed. So if they said to the guys on the ground in, in, uh, in Mumbai, set fire to a hotel, the control room would then look at the pictures coming from BBC and say the hotel's not burning. Work harder, make the hotel burn. So there was this ventriloquism. That was a, a, a new feature of, um, of the attack. And I think also, although the kids, because they pretty much were kids, I mean the average age of the gunman was 21, although they were very ill-educated, they came from very impoverished parts of the Punjab in Pakistan, they had been through a very rigorous training programme organised by Lashkar Toiba, which was the Islam Islamist group which, um, which planned and executed this attack. 
they'd spent about a year in jungle training camps, in mountaintop training camps, learning all sorts of very sophisticated warfare tactics, and, um, and they were very well armed. Very well drilled. I mean, and it shows you a couple of simple ideas. They took remote, uh, small remote bombs with them. They placed them on taxis and the bombs detonated all over the city at different times. And so the footprint for the attack appeared to be far larger than it was. And there was a time when the police were first mobilising, when we, we, we've got nearly all of their intercoms so we can hear you know, what they were saying during, during, during the night, um, where, they, where they believed that an entire army had attacked the city, rather than just 10 men with a, with a plan being remotely manipulated from Karachi. Well, even when you said 10, 10 kids, I thought, Ten. I, I remember it was much more than that because it, it did feel like the whole city was was being invaded at the time. Yeah, no, it was it was it was ten gunmen for the whole city, and they kept it going for three days. But social media was used as well. This is a really interesting thing. Our our our, our passion and the Indian passion for mobile phones, for texting, uh, for for Facebook, whatever it is, everything that that could be used as social media was being studied by the controllers, the terrorist controllers in Karachi. So uh, if a British guy. Um, was um, texting or tweeting his location in the hotel, that information, as it was channeled by news organisations, would be passed to the terrorists on the ground, who'd be told to go to that part of the hotel and find whoever it was. And in one case, a, a millionaire um, a yacht broker um, took up a live interview with a British anchor working for BBC and revealed where all the people were hiding around him. Next thing you know, the gunmen are directed to that spot, the controllers watching the BBC, and uh, that spot comes under siege, uh, sustained fire with AK-47s, grenades thrown, and he would subsequently die. Wait, like, how many people were, they were in a, in a room somewhere? Hundreds. And this guy revealed their identity, and how many gunmen were in the hotel? Four gunmen in the hotel, um, using uh, mobile phones, and uh, they'd receive a call, um, let's say, you know, uh, three o'clock in the morning, just watch the BBC, all the people you're chasing are hiding on the club floor of the Taj. Find the club floor, go there now. I think the important thing to say about the Taj, because it seems slightly unbelievable that four gunmen could keep a whole hotel full of 2,000 people sort of at bay, but what they were aided by in the first place was um, surveillance, video, maps, detailed plans of the hotel, which GPS all, coordinates. all been provided by this American, um, um, what would you describe Double that? agent. Double agent who was working for Lashkar Toiba in the two years up until the Mumbai attacks. And he had stayed at the hotel, he'd drunk in the bar, he'd, he'd gone on the Friday tour, which is when the members of the public were allowed to look around some of the back rooms. So although these boys from the Punjab had never left Pakistan before, they knew exactly their way around the hotel because they had been provided with all this material. So for the hotel staff and the police standing outside, kind of not sure what to do, it just seemed like they kind of had this X-ray vision. But also, if you just take it back one step, the hotel itself is a labyrinth. It's a hotel that came into being around 1901, 1902, and then it was remodelled, revised, transformed over the years. And it began as a hotel for... Um, uh, the, uh, the, upper, the British upper classes, the colonial masters, and then it became uh, a hotel for the Indian ruling classes, Indian Maharajas, Indian political stars, cricket stars, film stars, pop idols. Um, and each time the hotel would be remodelled, another floor would be added or another entrance point, none of them met up properly. And so to actually work out the logistics of the hotel is extremely difficult for an ordinary person. When you walk in, going from north to south is a complex affair. There's the front of house, there's the, uh, the, back, the backstage area where the chefs and, uh, and, and all of the, uh, the wait staff um, are working. And there were no blueprints. 
So um, extremely difficult um, to navigate as a guest, almost impossible for the security forces when they would eventually arrive, um, extremely difficult for the police when the police turn up at the hotel, but the terrorists had had a walkthrough using reconnaissance video, so they were probably more familiar with the hotel than many others who would come after. I mean, there was even, um, there was even a uh, 3D walkthrough that the Taj group had paid for on Google Earth, which was up on the net. So you could kind of wander around the environments of the hotel itself, around the back streets and work all the ways, ways in, ways out, and, and, and they used that as well, the terrorists got Running that. live that night. So one of the guys who they had in the control room was from Mumbai originally. He's from Maharashtra originally, not from Mumbai, but the state around the city of Mumbai. And he was familiar with everything to do with the city. And he was sat at his desk in the control room uh, in a secure area near to Karachi Airport, looking at Google Maps, walking around the 3D spin around, the point of view that pr provided for Google by the Taj, so that they could navigate when people didn't know where they were going. And so Google Maps, 3D Maps, Skype, Twitter, live news interviews, do you think this is a template for attacks that we'll see more of? Definitely. It's a swarm. The whole idea of the swarm, the idea that you know, a small number of well-articulate, you know, well-trained, well-drilled men um, um, can, can go into um, a, a densely packed city and attack wide open civilian targets. And you'll know that it was exactly copied uh, in Nairobi in the Westgate Mal attack that's just recently happened this year. And the supervisors, the masterminds for that attack were trained in Pakistan by the same team that drilled Mumbai 2611. Um, and the, you know, the lessons that were learnt from Mumbai were enhanced and smoothed and polished for the Westgate Mal attack. But they're basically the same genesis. And remember the operation in Mumbai, it cost around 40,000 US dollars. So it's low cost, high tech, you know, internet telephony, even their phone bills were kept small with, you know, Skype-like lease line contracts. I was going to say, it's high-tech, but cheap. Cheap. I mean, stuff which you can access for free. Yes. And we always hear that Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups are these multi-billion dollar international criminal mastermind networks, but this sounds, I mean, in some ways, amazing. Invent inventive. But in some ways, quite simple and quite, quite easy yeah, to exactly. set up. Yes, and I think it's the way forward that they'll do it again. I mean, it's, it's such an easy thing to do. If you do your homework and you've got your maps and you've sorted out your communications, what's easier than to walk into a shopping centre or a five-star hotel and cause chaos with a few AK-47s? And you get on the headlines, you get on the news straight away. You get what you want, which is publicity, which brings in with it funding and more recruits. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it represents um, definitely a new kind of exportable model. And, um, you know, no city is prepared for that kind of terror. It doesn't matter whether it's in the US, the UK, across Europe, we're not prepared for it. I mean, you know yourself, if you walk into a mall, you might see one security guy on the door. What's he going to do in the face of an AK-47 charging him down? He's not going to hang around. And the attackers are prepared to die. And they're prepared to give up their life. They're all Fidayeen squads. They're all suicide squads charged up. They've been honed. I mean, the boys, we studied the, the team that went into Mumbai, went to see their families in the Pakistan Punjab, and went to the training areas and the training camps. And the process was brilliantly, brilliantly put together. You know, they arrive off the bus. They immediately give up their names and they're given a number. They're housed in these massive barrack-like tents. And the first thing that happens is religious transformation. And they're all basically made the same through a series of very intense religious and physical training. And they, they get an incredible internal discipline. They get to belong as a group. And then they work them using similar methods to the special forces in the West. You know, they train them in extreme cold, in extreme heat, at day and at night, non-verbal communication. I mean, it really is an intense period, which is well calculated, with a lot of psychology involved. And we describe it as making them childlike, infantilising them.
It sounds a bit like boot camp. It's boot camp. Break but someone I, down and then yeah. build them up into something else. I think the other important thing to say is that they choose their, their recruits really carefully. Yeah. So they'll go to very impoverished areas where there are no jobs, where quite often the fathers are absent because they're working in Dubai because there's no way of making money where they live in Pakistan. And they'll choose boys from big families who are missing their father figure and who don't really have a kind of a, fam a close family unit around them. And they'll take them away and they'll, well, they'll drive into the villages in their big sort of pickups with AK-47s flashed around and they'll just say, who wants to come with us? And which kid in that village is not going to want to go with them rather than going off to the fields and earning like 200 rupees for three days' work starting at four o'clock in the morning. It's much more exciting to go off and do something like this. To be part of something, to have some respect, to have some kind of excitement. I mean, the, you'll see the posters in all these villages of the martyrs who've gone before and they are like kind of Hollywood heroes and kids are, are indoctrinated and, and trained to want to sign up to groups like Lashkar Toiba because it provides a possibility to become something, to break out of, of the mundaneness of your daily life. You, you see graffiti along the way that says in the Punjab that says not, not, not cricket star, not movie star, but jihad star. And they've got a character called Jihad Joe, who's like a cartoon figure, who's passed around schools, showing you know what can happen if you actually want to, want to go the hero's path rather than going the poor agricultural workers path and you know that's why so many boys get swept up along with organizations like Lashka. And you say Punjab, where exactly were the training camps? They've got two areas to train, the recruiting grounds are in the Punjab but not the training areas because the Punjab is densely populated um, and easy, uh, easy to access for um, unwanted observers and so they train in the mountains in Kashmir in Pakistan administered Kashmir above um, the capital of that state called Musafarabad and there in the Chelabandi Hills, they've got an enormous complex, brilliantly organised, with a, a technical nerve centre that was known as the Icebox. And inside there, they had every kind of quickening, new-aided technology that you would have pretty much anywhere else, um, you know, with a good broadband connection. And uh, they had three uh, parade grounds and drilling grounds, which are named after great Islamic battles. And then above that, further up into the mountains, there's all kinds of uh, more sophisticated honing that goes on and training involving survival and uh, nighttime manoeuvring, uh, manoeuvring in snow, climbing. They've got all sorts of different units with different physical capabilities. But in the case of, of, of the boys who were destined for Mumbai, of which were 32 original recruits, their final graduation was to go off into the mountains for three days and three nights without anything and to be chased by their trainers and those with, that live, fire. with live fire and those that survived would then graduate by being given a live goat, a knife and a matchbox with which to then have kind of like Make hill, the fire, hilltop feast. Slaughter the goat, cook it themselves and the people who graduated from that would then sit in the dinghy and take off from Karachi for Mumbai. So it sounds like the kind of very advanced training camp that we were told existed in Afghanistan, but didn't really, but does in Pakistan. Yeah, Lashkar are backed by the intelligence service in Pakistan. They were conceived by the intelligence service in 1990, 1991. And the idea was there would be a covert army that would fight India under the cover, particularly in divided Kashmir, where they began waging war. Um, and they would do it in plain clothes, but their munitions, their money, and initially their training was provided by the Pakistan military and Pakistan intelligence. And in this plot for 2611, all around the plot are individuals from the intelligence service and the military. Maybe not the institutions, but individuals who acted as liaison, who refined the training, particularly when it became a marine operation, going at night in a boat with landlocked boys who'd never been on the sea before, 
that required input from specialists to give them that edge. So with support with, of, of rogue agents from the state or with support from the state? Well, that's something that's very difficult to, to establish. I mean, there were at least four agents from the Army and all the ISI who were actively involved in this operation. There was um, one handler who was an ISI major who was based in Lahore, who worked with David Headley, who was the American scout, the one who did all the surveillance. And then there was a major Sahib who, um, who the one surviving terrorist described as coming to the jungle camps several times to check whether the training was going well and how the boys were doing. And he was an army officer. He might well also have been ISI. And then, as Adrian said, there was uh, an army frogman who took the, the recruits through all they needed to learn for the training to go across the sea. And then, I mean, the camps that they were trained in were the same camps, as you say, that the Mujahideen. Um, had trained in Afghanistan, they're the same locations, and they were set up by the ISI with training and munitions provided by the army. So, I mean, there's still a very close connection. Whether or not the ISI as an organisation was actively involved in Mumbai? It's not provable, one way or the other, but there's a very close link. I mean, when you talk to investigators in Pakistan who work in the civilian side, um, if you ask them about Lashkar, they describe Lashkar to you as the foreign policy tool of the spies in Pakistan. They, they cannot see any difference between Lashkar internally, the internal debate inside government and the military. Lashkar and, and the spies, they're the same organisation. So it, for them, it, you know, they raise the issue that it's impossible to understand how an operation like that could happen unless there was some kind of institutional backing. But there's no evidence of it. They're very good at what they do. And what's been the US response to this? Because obviously Pakistan as a US ally gets 1.6 billion, whatever it is, in aid every year. Mm. yet someone from the state is, is sponsoring terrorist groups? America's role in this operation is quite a complicated one because they were actually running the same guy who did the scouting for Lashkar Toiba was also working for the, for the CIA, trying to infiltrate jihadi groups in Pakistan with a view to finding bin Laden, because this was obviously in 2008. And um, although they passed on 26 warnings to the Indian authorities between 2006 and just before the attack happened, they didn't identify the source of their information because they wanted to keep this guy in play to look for, for um, Al-Qaeda leaders. Yeah, I mean, as you know, um, with intellig intelligence is a messy business and here at the centre of this, there's a man who's serving many, many sides, this guy David Headley, whose real name is Dawood Salim Jilani. Um, he was born to uh, a mother from Maryland and a father from Lahore who fell in love in Washington while the Pakistani father was over working for Voice of America. And this unlikely love match um, gives rise to this hybrid who can survive in Lahore and he can survive in the Upper West Side where he went to live in New York. And he could, be, he could straddle both worlds, speaking the language of both worlds and be accepted as two kinds of things. Um, and um, come 1998, um, when Al-Qaeda strikes against America in Africa, blowing up the embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, um, having dallied with different sides of um, uh, an American life and also been a drug dealer and had a kind of a, quite, quite a developed sense of self-preservation from, from dealing heroin on a massive scale, both in Pakistan and America, he offered himself up to the intelligence services with a deal that he get let off his most recent heroin offence, importing, you know, I think over a kilo, or was it? Ten. Ten kilos of uh, smack. He get let off um, in order for, for him to penetrate the Islamist movement in Pakistan, starting with Lashkar Taiba. And so the intelligence community can't think of a better offer at that time. They have no one else in who's got that proximity and who holds an American passport. So he begins. 
and is slowly worming his way into the organisation, who are very suspicious of him to start with. And it won't really be until 2005, 2006, that he's fully embedded inside Lashka and he's accepted as a, a Lashka um, cadre, I suppose you could say. And at the same time, he's filing information all the time back to the CIA, who are not fully in control of him. And so you've got this two-way, rogue, embedded uh, agent of influence, an asset, really, who's supplying information, working his own agenda, enriching himself. I mean, and another example of how bizarre the, the way this worked, his, um, his private life was equally uh, surreal. He had three wives who didn't know of each other's existence. He married a makeup artist, a uh, Canadian, living in New York, um, who believed that uh, he was the one and only David Headley, knew nothing about his antecedents. At the same time, he had a conservative Islamic wife living in Lahore who thought she was the one, um, and she lived a very covered existence and had a very conservative religious uh, relationship with Dawood Jilani. And then he found himself a third wife, a young Moroccan medical student who was Western-leaning, who knew nothing of the other two women, but who discovered on his mobile phone one day that he was dating, seeing, in fact, had children with two other wives, and blew up and started reporting to the authorities during the planning for the Mumbai operation. And in the midst of all of this, he's scouting Mumbai, taking videos, offering insights into the hotel, moving seamlessly around the city. But he's, he's one of the main characters in the book, and I think most, even people who followed this story minute by minute at the time have never heard of this guy. You say he's a double agent. When I think of a double agent, I think he's pretending to work for Russia, but he's actually working for America, or vice versa. He actually seems to be working for both at the same time. Yeah, the CIA, the intelligence people call him a triple agent, in effect, because they say that he was working for the CIA, Lashka, and himself. And that may be the most accurate description. But he's not pretending to help Lashka. He is actually helping yeah. Lashka and helping to plan this attack. Yeah. He's helping both sides, yes. And the other bizarre thing about him is that virtually everybody in his family tried to warn the authorities. So his mum rang up the FBI and said, I'm worried that my son keeps disappearing off to Pakistan, coming back with a beard and talking about all this crazy Islamic shit. And then his wife in America, his Canadian makeup artist wife, rang up the FBI and said, he keeps going on about 9-11 and saying what great heroes the people who were flying the planes were, and I'm really worried about him. His Moroccan wife went to the, um, the American embassy in Islamabad in Pakistan three, twice and tried to report him, saying he keeps going off to Mumbai with some story about... He's casing Mumbai. ...planning some operation there. He, he's pretending he's running a business over there, but he keeps coming back, and I'm sure he's planning some kind of terrorist operation. And his brother, his half... Half-brother in America, who, who was in, uh, captain in the U.S. Um, Army, based in uh, Iraq, rang up his superior officer and said, I've got this really strange half-brother who's half-Pakistani and he's just come to a family party and said he's had a son and he's calling him Azama. So all these people from his family were trying to warn the authorities that he was up to something really, really dodgy and yet nothing was actually done about it. But to also go back to what you were saying about the American role in all of this. Th their role is, is complicated because of the relationship between America and Pakistan. For, so for example, there was a big, big uh, intelligence uh, dossier was handed to the, um, to the State Department in 2007 about Lashkar Toiba, saying that, that they had, um, it was by British and French um, security analysts, saying that they had evidence that Lashkar was planning to break away from its traditional field of fighting against India in Kashmir. 
and was looking to mount some kind of big operation internationally targeting Americans, Brits and, and Israelis. In London, possibly. Using what they described as clean skins, i.e. white converts, to sort of do surveillance and potentially be involved in the operation as well. And this dossier of evidence was presented to the White House. And George Bush's government at the time said, well, that is an issue for Pakistan domestically to deal with because Musharraf was still the president in Pakistan. Lashkar was still a government agency in Pakistan. So nothing was done about that. So they could have prevented Mumbai. America's always been hobbled by its desire to court Pakistan. America wants to see Pakistan as its Islamic ally standing up as a security bulwark against Al-Qaeda, against the Taliban, as you know, on the Afghan border, the hot border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, the hot border with Iran, the hot border with India. And yet the reality is that um, Pakistan, as often as not, does its own bidding, of course, and its interests do not meet the interests of America. And there's no clearer example of that than here. I mean, when the Lashkar dossier was delivered, the attitude of the George W. Bush administration was, um, we can't touch Lashkar. The military are too sensitive in Pakistan about Lashkar. They rejected but, it outright. But even if there's an intelligence briefing saying that Western targets or Western individuals are going to be targeted, and there's this, this man is, is plotting something, you know, do some agencies get hold of that and then the CIA say, keep off him, he's our asset? It must be the case because so many people reported him so many times and yet nothing was done. And, uh, you know, we know that he was the source of um, the intelligence that was then passed on to the Indians, warning them that an attack was imminent. 26 bulletins derived from David Headley, naming the city, naming the methodology, landing by boat at night, naming the type of attack, suicide attack, the targets, all the hotels named, the Taj, the Five Star Oberoi, the train station that would be attacked called Victoria Terminus, Jewish Centre. So all of these components were passed in bulletins, but as it happened, the Indians didn't develop the intelligence. But he was, he was not pretending to plan this to get deeper into Lashkar. He was actually helping to plan this attack. Both. So he wasn't loyal to anyone. No, he was just... No. He was loyal to himself. And just whoever was paying him. That, that yes. was it. He's a He's mercenary. Yes, he is a mercenary. He's a man who likes to be at the centre of attention. He likes to be in the middle of all the intrigue and excitement. He sees himself as a James Bond character. He's the loudest guy in the bar. He's the guy who wore the Rolex Submariner and had the leather coat flung over his shoulder with a, with a blonde ponytail. Striding into the bar, he wanted to be seen and o heard. Only drinking Don Perignon champagne, nothing else. But how can he trick the CAA? Because presumably, if you're looking to recruit people in your CAA, the main thing you've got to know is is this guy trustworthy? No, but it's, well, it's messy. It's messy, isn't it? Doesn't it doesn't work like and, that. And if, you, I mean, if they're looking for, for someone that can get them to Osama bin Laden, this is not going to be a straightforward character. It's going to be someone who's already very compromised. They're going to have to make more compromises to, to use someone like that. I mean, there are several, many, many um, occasions when they've done similar with other characters. I mean, someone who's going to join Al-Qaeda or fight for an Islamist group is not going to be a very straightforward person to deal with. And I think that someone like David Headley is the best you're going to get in terms of a genuine way in to an organisation. And he'd been edging um, from this one group, Lashkar Toiba, towards Al-Qaeda, and that was, that's what became critical. He befriended one of Al-Qaeda's main military commanders called Ilyas Kashmiri, and this guy was operating up in the tribal areas of Pakistan. And as soon as that happened, and they were clearly friends, emailing each other, telephoning using code names, all of which were picked up by the intelligence service, it became clear that there was an American passport holder with an Americanized name who was nearer than anyone else at this time to Al-Qaeda. And not only to Al-Qaeda, but to one of the leading military commanders of Al-Qaeda. 
But that's what I'm, he doesn't seem like he's brilliant at getting close to Al-Qaeda as a CIA asset. It seems like he was genuinely felt an affinity with Al-Qaeda. It felt like his political views were with Al-Qaeda. Se several family members and a couple of his wives said that when he was in America, he was American. He had American views. He, he was patriotic. And something clicked in his mind. And when he was in Pakistan, he was patriotic to Pakistan and to Islam. I mean, he had one blue eye. He still has. He's still alive. One blue eye, one brown eye. And it's completely separated in his head, these two sides of his personality. So he is loyal to both. And he is working for both. But ultimately, as Adrian says... He's working for himself. Yes. And did he actually dangle that carrot in front of them? Like, I might be able to get you bin yeah. Laden, so yes. give me a, a free pass. Yes, and yeah, he did that deal in 1998. It was cemented in 1999. Instead of receiving um, what, what the others in the drug syndicate he worked for at that time received, which was between four and ten year sentences, he'd walked and was in Pakistan on a ticket paid for him by the US government within a year. And so this extraordinary uh, man who could barter his way out of any situation. We've actually seen footage of him being interrogated by the FBI subsequently when uh, eventually he was arrested for one reason or another. And um, he's absolutely winning the room. You know, he can sit in a room and he, he can play anyone in, in any way. Extremely. He's not, he's not trained to do interrogations like the FBI or the CIA would be. He's well, the, his own wits. Yeah, I mean, the, the, only, the only training he received actually was from the ISI because one of the things they did was to, to get him inserted next to the ISI because he was close to Lashka. And he, he admits that he was given a, a compressed one-year course in Lahore, which is run by a non-commissioned officer who took him through surveillance, counter-surveillance, communication methods, dead drops, which is the basic training course that an ISI officer would be given when they recruited the spy agency in Pakistan. And where is he now? He's incarcerated in a jail in America on a 30, 35-year 30, sentence. Yeah. But, you know, considering the fact he was charged with the deaths of 166 people and the prosecutor suggested the death sentence might be appropriate, everyone can see the, the deal that he did that got him this lesser sentence. And I have no doubt he'll be in the witness protection programme and out within a decade. And did you try and get access to him in prison? We are writing. We're still working on that. Very um, difficult. Yeah. Because he's still an asset. Yeah. Um, going back to the siege itself, um, there are some incredible stories of heroism from the people working and staying in the hotel. Can you describe some of them? Yes, I mean, the, 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 one of the terrible things about that night is that the security forces in India didn't really respond. I mean, the police were told to stay out of the hotel and wait for the National Security Guard, which is their equivalent of kind of SAS, to come down, but they were in Delhi. And so inside the hotel were four gunmen and about 2,000 guests and staff. And it became clear within sort of three or four hours to the staff of the hotel that they were going to have to try and do something themselves because no one else was coming in. And so what they worked on was, was they could see that the gunman had an intricate knowledge of the front of house of the hotel. They prayed that the gunman didn't really know how the back of the hotel worked, so the kitchens, the corridors, the storerooms. And so they worked out because most people had been mid-dinner when the attack started and people were hiding in restaurants, that they would use the kitchens out of the back of the restaurants to get people into the back of the hotel and then congregate them in one place and then try and get them um, out into a street behind. And um, they did very successfully get most of the guests into one location, but I think that was their failing really, was because they took everyone into one location. As Adrian said, one of those guests then rang up and gave a live interview to the BBC and said, we're all in this private club called Chambers, which was actually not on the map of the hotel, not on the blueprint. That's when the gunman 
found this location and shot into the crowd of people that killed was in there. Killed a lot of people. And they killed mainly hotel staff because the hotel staff were in the process of getting these people out down a staircase outside when the gunman came through the kitchens. And a group of chefs who were sort of shielding people and trying to get them out turned around, saw the gunman rushing into the kitchens shooting and ran at them and took the bullets basically and the, the, the guests and the diners who were behind them were saved. So. But people made split-second decisions without knowing or understanding the, um, the architecture of the hotel. So when the, when the heavy firing began, some people ran up, up, up back staircase and some people ran down. And the difference between up and down can be life and death. And the ones who ran down were running down into the darkened basement and the gunman came after, hunting them room by room and basically killed nearly everyone who was in the basement. Uh, one woman who was, uh, had been to the Taj um, uh, to celebrate her brother's birthday, her 32nd birthday, they were having a slap-up Chinese dinner and it's a very lovely Sichuan restaurant. She chose the down staircase along with her in-laws, her brother, all of their family. They were separated in a succession of rooms along a darkened corridor and she could hear the gunman coming room by room, kicking the doors down, shooting everyone dead. And she herself was a Buddhist and she began um, her own routine, chanting, taking herself into herself, meditating. And uh, when, when they came for her, they knocked the door down in the darkness. They shot everyone in the room that she was in. She received five rounds. Um, nearly all her internal organs failed apart from her heart. She lost um, a tremendous amount of blood and she woke herself up on the gurney, finding herself in a hospital several hours later. Doctors could not believe that she'd come round. And somehow, somehow she'd managed to slow down her metabolism enough to be able to withstand the assault. And when she woke up, they then had to break the news that everyone she was with that night had been slaughtered. And other guys had, uh, had done miraculous things. There was an American Marine captain who'd uh, fought uh, fighter missions in Iraq, uh, flying a Harrier in the Fallujah operation. And uh, he heard the gunshots coming up the staircase. He was remarkable. He was fantastic because he was having dinner. He was half Indian and he hadn't been back to India for nearly a decade. So he'd gone back to Mumbai to meet all relatives, his long lost cousins and stuff. And they were all having dinner on the top floor of a tower which is like the tower next to the hotel, it's part of the hotel. And uh, he heard the, heard the shots, gunfire, realised immediately that something very bad was happening downstairs. And he ripped up all of his identity, identification things in his purse, in his wallet. He stuffed his stars, stars and Stripes credit card down his sock. And then he proceeded to evacuate everyone in this restaurant and, mm, nice and a ballroom next door, down 20 flights of a fire escape, got them all out, completely um, safely, uh, even though they had to go run this sort of gauntlet of a sniper's alley on one of the floors. And then he just walked out into the crowds and just walked away and didn't tell anyone what he was. Without telling anybody who he was, what his experience was, never went to, uh, you know, to, claim, to claim any glory for it. Just quite extraordinary. He built, he, built, uh, he built an eerie for them before they did the evacuation, which was like a kind of military bastion, like a forward operating base of fob inside, um, inside the hotel. He had people up in the suspended roof ready to jump down in case um, the gunman came up um, through the lifts. They armed themselves inside the kitchen apart from him because he saw the knives and uh, he just kept thinking of AK-47s. And as he said to us, don't take a knife to a gunfight. You spoke to him? Yeah. Eventually. Like, I mean, eventually. He, a lot he, of coaxing. He was one of the most difficult interviews because he just didn't want to tell his story. So you res rescued dozens? 250 people nearly. And then just walked into the night and yep. vanished. never told anyone what he'd done? No. no. And how did you hear about him? I heard about him through staff at the hotel. The security staff at the hotel were also extraordinarily brave. But also there was, there was also a uh, South African VIP security team in the mm. same restaurant 
who had been talking about their story and they'd mentioned that they'd had some help from a US Marine of Indian descent. Without giving him away. Uh... And we eventually worked out his name. So the police were told to stand down and wait for the um, Indian Special Forces to come. How long did it take for them to arrive? It took 12 hours in the end because the Indian Special Forces, although they were highly trained and the perfect force to send into a hotel that was under siege, they were based in Delhi, so that's three hours already. They had to wait for the government of Maharashtra, which is the state that Mumbai is the capital of, to officially request assistance. Then they had to wait for permission from the Home Ministry, the Security Ministry, and then eventually, even though they'd, they'd rung up, the, the head of the NSG, National Security Guard, had rung up um, his superiors and said, 20 minutes after the operation started, we can get straight down and deploy to the airport now. He was not given the authority to go and do that, do that until one o'clock in the morning. And then when they got to the airport, there was no plane. They eventually found a plane. The plane had no fuel. The plane had no crew. And, um, and then there was no lifting gear to take all their kit onto the plane. They had to hump it on by hand. And so they eventually turned up at seven o'clock the next morning. So 12 hours after the initial call? Yes. And so they actually went into the hotel 12 hours after the initial call. By which stage, the gunmen, although they're young kids, had done exactly as they had been trained, which is to find a stronghold, take hostages, make sure you're bedded down, you've got people on all levels around you, and sit and fight it out to the death. So they were well embedded by that stage. So the Special Forces, when they finally arrive, then what happens? They then had to work out where the gunmen were, because the hotel was still full of people. They don't, I mean, apart from the people who'd been evacuated by the American um, Marine Force captain and the South African VIP security team, who were all in the same location, everybody else was still inside. So there were upwards of 1,500 people. So the NSG couldn't just burst into the hotel and start shooting willy-nilly because they would have shot loads of innocent people. So they had to work out exactly where the gunmen were. And the gunmen kept moving, and they kept moving with the hostages as well. So they'd go from one stronghold, they'd be in there for five hours, then they'd go to another one. And eventually, on the third day, the National Security Guard worked out that the gunmen were in a corner restaurant, which had a spiral staircase, which went from the bar, the harbour bar, the main bar of the hotel, up to the Japanese restaurant called Wasabi. And that there was a pillar around this spiral staircase, which was completely reinforced. And so whatever they chucked at these two rooms, which they, the terrorists went up and down all the time, they just couldn't get in, they couldn't fire in, they couldn't actually destroy the, the corrugation around, uh, sorry, the, um, the concrete around the spiral staircase. So the way they ended it in the end was to, um, the NSG created these kind of like homemade bombs out of, um, out of dynamite and RDX and they wrapped some other stuff around it and they basically chucked one into the top floor restaurant and chucked one into the bottom floor restaurant simultaneously and they blew the whole thing up. And then they killed the four gunmen after 68 hours. And how come the four gunmen were in there and no hostages? Because that, by that stage, they'd, because they'd set fire to so many bits of the hotel, they'd had to relocate several times and they'd lost the hostages in the process or they'd, they'd kill people as well. And it was just kind of them against the NSG at the end. And I remember, I know he wasn't one of the four guys who was in the hotel, but I remember the one surviving attacker. He was interviewed on a hospital bed while he was under arrest. Yeah. And it, it seemed like he'd suddenly realised what he'd done. Yes. He seemed sort of like a child. He said, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. And it was almost like he'd woken up from a dream or something. Can yeah, you... I, I think you characterised it exactly correctly. I mean, he, 
he got caught about one o'clock on the first morning, so this is about four hours after the whole operation had started, and he was driving up Marine Drive in the main kind of drag against the sea in, um, in Mumbai, and he came up against a, a big roadblock, police roadblock, and his accomplice got shot dead, and he kind of came out, out of the car firing, and three policemen jumped on him, two of whom died because they were shot in the stomach, and, and he was then taken off to this hospital and was interrogated immediately. And he just completely broke down and gave it all away. Within half an hour, he'd explained which group, the fact it was Pakistan, where they'd been trained, who they'd been trained by, the fact that ISI people had been helping to do the training, what were their targets, what was the plan, i.e. fight to the death. I mean, he gave it all up. And he, people said that he was playing, playing, a, playing a role and that he wasn't really um, as contrite as he tried to show himself to be when he was lying on the bed, but I don't think he was sophisticated enough to be able to do it any other way. And he said, he said, I basically had been given up by my family and I'd gone into this and I'd realised two months into the training that I didn't want to do this, but by that stage it was too late, late and no one came to get me from my family and I just got stuck in this programme of training and pushed into this suicide mission and, and this was him on the boat bed was the first ch chance he'd had to actually say anything to anybody outside of Lashkar Toiba. And you, you believe him when he says that? Yeah, I do. I think he had, he had been brainwashed. And suddenly he's kind of, he's in the mission. I mean, he was ruthless when he was in the train station, which is where he, he was sent. I mean, he killed, him and his accomplice killed more than 60 people in about three minutes, shooting dead like grannies, kids, anybody, everybody. He casually walking around yeah. on your machine gun. Yes, and I think, but he'd, he'd been in that programme of training for more than a year by that stage, and he'd like charged up, adrenaline firing on all cylinders into the, into the situation of attacking Mumbai. Went in, did his job, and then suddenly he's arrested and he's like, Shit, what have I done? I mean, whether he felt contrite or not, who knows? I don't know, but we won't know because he was hung last year for his crimes. I was going to say, the authorities didn't, didn't believe him. No. Well, he did what he did. Whether he was programmed to do what he did or yeah. whether he genuinely felt that he wanted to kill foreigners and, and Hindus and whatever, you don't know. I mean, he was just on that zone. Yeah. I remember at the time we heard loads of stories about the Americans and the Brits who were caught up in, in the siege. Um, but it seemed to me there were some incredible stories about the local people who, who lived and worked there and, and their heroism. Can you tell me some of those stories that, that are in the book? Yeah, one, one of the best, one of the most amazing stories comes from a re young restaurant manager in the Taj called Amit Peshave, who we uh, interviewed at length. And he, he was running the 24-hour coffee shop on the ground floor of the Taj, so which was just behind the lobby. So when the attackers, the two teams of two men came in one side door and through the lobby, he kind of heard it straight away because he was on duty in his restaurant, which had about 60 people in it. And um, he was just completely terrified. His head was filled with the fact that he was um, three staff down that day. He turned up late. There were problems in the kitchen. Something wasn't working. So his head was kind of full of all this stuff. And then suddenly gunmen come in through the lobby a load of people in the lobby run into his restaurant, meaning there's now like 80 people in the restaurant, and he's the only member of staff on duty. And he told us that he kind of thought, what the hell do I do here? Everyone's looking at me now thinking that I'm going to help them and rescue them. What do I do? And he, he remembered, because the gunmen were coming this way, that there was actually a door where the live band played that was never used, but the door opened up onto the gardens. And so he thought, if I can get that door open, then 
potentially we can get into the gardens and then out the back of the hotel. And so all the guests were sort of like under the tables, lying on the floor, and he went and charged at this door, which was still locked, opened it up, and he said he got outside, and he just looked up at the stars and just thought, I can actually go now, I could just save myself. And he said he was like this close to doing it, and then he thought, I could never live with myself. The rest of my life, I would always think that I've let these people behind me die. So he turned round, and he said it was the worst moment of his life, because he turned around and he saw these sort of faces of people looking at him, and he just thought, we've got to stick together with them. I've got to stick together with them, and which he did. And he spent another three or four hours. He actually did get them out into the garden. They hid in this bush, big load of bushes beside the swimming pool for about four hours. And he then back, went back in several times into the hotel to go and find people. Like there was one couple who'd lost a, their six-year-old son had gone to the toilet and he was missing. So Amit tried to get back into the hotel to find him, nearly got shot, had a grenade thrown at him. I mean, he eventually got out with all of the people he'd rescued from the restaurant. And again, he just walked away. Well, he actually, he walked to the hospital, uh, the main Bombay hospital, because he'd found out lots of his friends in the kitchens were also killed and shot. And so he then spent the rest of the two, three days in the hospital, helping the, um, the ambulance drivers with all the bodies and, and, and injured colleagues from the Taj. I mean, he was a great character. And how many people did he save in the end? 40 people. No, no. There were 80 people in the restaurant to start with. He got 40 out through a fire escape and the other 40 went with him into the bushes. So 80 in total. And what's he doing now? Is he back at the hotel? No, he's in London. He's working for a company in London, completely different job. Um, but I think he's, he's still very kind of cut up about what happened because I mean, it's a big, terrible trauma to go through. I mean, he said one, one of the worst moments was that after he and the people in the restaurant got out into the bushes, which was overlooking the pool, he could see that there were still two tourists sitting at this poolside bar and he'd actually served them a bottle of wine earlier on before it had all kicked off. And he said for something, they were quite old, they were Canadian some reason they were still sitting at this table drinking their wine even though this thing was all kicking off and he said he watched one of the gunmen who'd already kind of come into his restaurant and shot dead his wait one of his waiters he watched his gunman walking out of the lobby down towards the pool area and he could see that it was only a matter of seconds before the gunman would spot these people because there were some pillars in the way and he thought what do i do i could like shout at them and tell them to get out of the way because they're going to get shot any minute now or I could keep quiet because I've now got like 30 people with me in the bushes. He said the worst thing he had to do was watch this gunman walk down, spot the two people there, shot them dead, point blank range. And he didn't do it, and Amit didn't do anything because he thought I've got 30 people with me and there are only two. So he said that he's had nightmares about that ever since. And it sounds like you've spoken to most of the people who were involved. Um, you know, what are their lives like now, five years on? Depends what happened to them on the night. I mean, one, one of the people that we interviewed at length is um, a London. Um, he, he worked for a vi video company, and his name was Will Pike. And he was on holiday with his girlfriend. And they'd been in Goa for two weeks, and they'd had decided at the last minute to have one splurge, one night at the Taj, bit of luxury, fluffy towels, nice bath, etc. And they checked in two hours before the attack started and they're in their room getting ready to go out for dinner. In fact, they'd actually already been out, sorry. They'd already been out and they'd had a drink at the Leopold Cafe, which was also shot at. So they'd missed that. And then they'd come back in and they were getting ready to have dinner in the restaurant when they suddenly started hearing gunfire and they're in their room. And Will said that he turned to his girlfriend and said, what the hell is this? is a five-star hotel. What? I can't believe there's gunfire going on inside the hotel. 
to cut a long story short, they were then stuck in their room for about six or seven hours. And like most other people who were stuck in their rooms, they just had no idea what to do because they could just hear gunfire, they could hear people being executed in rooms along the corridor from them because the gunmen went systematically through the floors and shot people. Presumably, they're, they're watching it on the news as well? No, because the electricity's gone off. Then there was, no, there was no communication from the hotel, so no phone calls. So they've got no idea? No it's idea. Just four guys. Texting, texting his, parent, his, his father back in London and, and her mother were the only bits of information that they could glean. And the worst thing is, so they're looking through the spy hole of the room door and all they can see is like gun, they can see gunmen sort of flitting around. They can start to see flames. They can hear the sound of people being killed. And outside the window at the front of the hotel, there's absolutely nothing. So there's no emergency services, there's no flashing lights, nothing. <laughs> the heroes are not coming to get them. And, um, and Will said, by three o'clock in the morning, so what, five hours in, he just said they'd had enough. They just thought, no one is going to come and rescue us. We have to just get out of here under our own means. And so they tied all their sheets of their bed together and curtains and stuff, chucked it over the balcony of the window of the room. And he said, I'll go first. She said, I don't think this is a very good idea. He said, well, it's our only option. And so he went over the side of the balcony, started climbing down the rope. It broke. He fell to the ground. She thought he was dead. And um, she found him the next day, the next afternoon, in Bombay Hospital, and he'd broken his spine. So he's now in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, cursing the day that he decided to jump out, because there was help on the way. And if they had waited a bit longer, then they would have been rescued by firefighters. But when you're in the middle of it, you just, you don't know. So, I mean, his life has been completely and utterly transformed as a result of that one night of luxury they had in the hotel. Um, not that many men, a few dinghies, some fairly basic weapons and explosives, some technology, but a lot of which is available free with a good internet connection. Do you think we'll see, well, we have just seen one attack like this in, in Nairobi, but do you think we'll see more attacks like this in the future? Definitely, because as you say, it's like, it's inexpensive, high tech, in that you use what's available sort of from social media and also communications. I think it is definitely the way of the future because it's a very easy way to mount terrorism. It doesn't involve kind of armies, it doesn't involve millions of pounds, it just involves a bit of imagination. I think the lesson of Mumbai and of the Westgate siege um, is to think the unimaginable. That was The Vice podcast with Adrian Levy and Cathy Scott-Clark, whose book The Siege is out now and is a great read. Thank you for watching. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. 
Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.